Funambulis Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, a conversation around closing politics with Hoda Katebe. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Hoda Kadebi, who is uh, the writer behind the blog uh, Juju Azad, uh, which I believe means free bird in Farsi, is that right? Yes. Yes, perfect. Which you um, define as a radical anti-capitalist intersectional feminist and body positive activist fashion blog. Uh, with a lot, lot, lot of material to, to think about. And I'm very happy that we get to speak about it today. So uh, hello, Hoda. Hi, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. No, thanks. Um, so perhaps to go right into the topic, because we recorded, we're recording this conversation to be featured in, the, in what is right now the next issue of The Phenomenalist, uh, which is a sequel of the first Closing Politics issue, so Closing Politics 2. And so to be to talk uh, about that, um, we could start with uh, an article that you've wrote that I think is in relation to many lectures you gave um, to explain how you perceive clothing and clothing in general and fashion in particular uh, as being political. I think you give like six different dimensions to how much it is political. Could you could you maybe tell us about it? Yeah, definitely. So um, for me, I think just as a background for this piece, fashion has always inherently been political for me. I've never really seen them as, um, as separate entities. Um, really on that thread, all art, I think, is political. And um, you either have the, the ability to use politics, uh, sorry, art for um, liberation, for self-care, and really as a kind of um, a vehicle for social change or if you're not you're just um you're silent and you're complacent that's still it's political it's just showing your privilege um in that situation so for me growing up in, in Oklahoma in the south and really understanding looking at the way that people view me just uh because of the way that I dress so wearing a hijab on my head rather than a scarf around my neck drastically changes the way that people interact um with me so that kind of being like the the background of where I got my interest in fashion, and that was almost purely from a political lens, um, and looking at the way that um, it has its communicative properties can be exploited or can be um, used to really create a um, powerful message. So that is is kind of the the framework for where I'm understanding fashion and where I'm coming from. And I think there are so many sort of factors that fashion is also not seen as as political. And I think that is because we live in a patriarchal society that deems women's work inherently invaluable. So anything from emotional labor, um, child rearing, like early education, a lot of these kind of job sectors that have historically been uh pegged as, quote, women's work, has always really had little pay, little value um, in terms of like child rearing or emotional labor, no value. Um, and yet, just like the fashion industry, women also have really historically dominated this industry, both in terms of consumer and producer. 
Um, and so for me, I think the reason why we don't see fashion as anything but shallow or vain or silly is really because of this patriarchal framework um, through which we're viewing this historical and traditional quote unquote women's work. Yeah, I think it, it resonates a lot with what we're trying to do with um, those two issues about closing politics in uh, because dealing dealing most of the time with more, let's say, geopolitical colonial uh, conditions uh, uh, going going back to this uh, to this uh, much smaller scale of what we might even want to call micro politics, but that has some very uh, macro uh, consequences was also very important to us in uh, in in putting that in the conversation um and and so um per- perhaps since i was describing the the six points that you you broke down in your in your article maybe maybe i can i can name them and um and we'll we'll follow the conversation with with them in mind because i think they they reappear everywhere in your work but uh, you you had written um one was production two consumption Uh, three appropriation, four gender presentation, five social conformity, and six symbolism. So I think uh, it, it will be very obvious that uh, those six dimensions are 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 going to frame this conversation. But since you since you were talking about uh, your own experience, because I think um, part of you part of what you write is um, uh, is um, Uh, just, I mean, not just. Sorry, uh, it's a is a reflection on um, uh, it's a reflection on clothing, on fashion, on certain on certain uh, the political aspect of it. But also, some other parts are really very much coming from uh, empirical uh, experience that you you have had. Um, I would like to talk about uh, this article with this great title, uh, "Making Racist and Comfortable One Outfit at a Time." Uh, where you talk about the idea of commanding stairs instead of uh, getting non-consensual, non-consensual glares, uh, can you can you tell us about this um, about this sort of reversal of uh, of and the agency you have on on stairs based on what what you wear what you're wearing? Yeah, definitely. So for me, I've. I started wearing the hijab or headscarf in sixth grade, um, and I was living in Oklahoma at that time. And um, just knowing and remembering and recalling just that feeling of feeling so alien and walking down the street, um, and still to this day, you know, you know everyone is just staring at you. And you can look up, you can look down, you can look any direction, but you still feel those glares. And if you look up, you can then you can make eye contact with all these people who are just instantly like judging you and making assumptions about what you believe in and what you possibly might do next um and so I was just reflecting a lot um about that and feeling like how like this feels so wrong you know like I I don't feel comfortable even walking down the street um and it it was it's a very like alienating feeling and meanwhile as my blog has become more and more political and I have been wearing more and more outwardly political clothing so reflecting back um, on the symbolism of what it looks like for um, a Muslim hijab wearing women to wear a shirt that says demilitarize across the chest for example Um, my clothes became a little bit more outwardly sort of um, unapologetic if you will and I noticed that as I was wearing this clothes wearing this clothing I still was being stared at and looked at but it was a very different sort of like look it felt like they weren't 
they didn't want to look at me at that point, but they had to. Um, and so I've, I always, I, <laughs> I don't know why I love wearing um, all black to the airport. I, I, you know, I like doing things that kind of um, provoke, um, one could say. But, and everyone is usually asking me, like, Hoda, why, why don't you just go through, like, quietly? Just, like, why do you have to wear clothes that always makes people stare at you? And when I first heard this question, it actually took me back a little bit. And I was like, you know, I don't. It never really occurred to me, like, why? But I knew that there was, like, a shift in my own feeling and perceptions as I was walking down the street. I felt so much more um, confident. I felt like I could really control. I was in control of the situation. So when I finally sat down and was thinking and reflecting um, on why I was doing this, I realized that by being able to um, dress in a certain way that makes people around me uncomfortable... Um, or basically kind of shatters their mis- their conceptions of what they think hijab-wearing women should dress like, I think allows me that agency in an otherwise um, non-consensual transaction. So I'm not asking to be stared at when I walk down the street, but when I'm wearing something that I know is going to command people's stares, I get my agency back. Like I am now not being stared at unwillingly. I am demanding that they're staring at me and they have no choice and they're staring at me. So for me, it's like a reversal of, um, being an object of being looking at than rather being an active kind of person playing a role in how my body is being perceived as I walk down the street. Uh, great. Um, so w- w- one of the ways that uh, I became, uh, I encountered your work was through one particular article uh, called Please Keep Your U.S. Flags Off My Hijab, uh, which related to um, to the time of uh, during uh, between the election of the current U.S. president and, uh, and his inauguration. Uh, one image that sort of circulated a lot was this, uh, this painting by uh, Shep- Shepard Fairley, um, a.k.a. Obey, uh, with, with this uh, Muslim-American woman wearing a, wearing a hijab with a U.S. flag on it. And, and, um, and as, many, <laughs> as many times with uh, Shepard Fairley's uh, paintings, in particular those, of a female uh, uh, activist, I think uh, it creates very problem. I mean, it triggers very problematic uh, um, uh, questions around them. And uh, this one in particular, uh, I think, infuriated you very legitimately. So, and could you could you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah, I think that for me, seeing this image pop up. Um, in a time of already sort of heightened emotional and mental crisis was deeply shocking and disturbing. Um, And I think a lot of also Muslim women and Muslim people felt that sort of way too. Um, But it may not have been immediately clear why, or a lot of people weren't able to really articulate why this seems so problematic. Um, And the few times that I sort of stressed that, and I was at a protest, for example, at... um, uh, the rally at the airport after the first Muslim ban dropped, I walked up to somebody and like this um, this image is really problematic. And as a hijab wearing Muslim woman who you're trying to be in solidarity with, as an Iranian, you know, who you're trying to come out to support me and my family being affected by this ban, I politely ask you to bring down this image because I find it harmful. And I was always responded to, oh, but like you should be happy I'm here anyway. Like this is a time of like crisis. We don't have like I'm I'm on your side, right? Like go after somebody else. And so I think that images like this while may even have good intentions, 
and a lot of I think especially in times of like political crisis I feel like are creating so much harm that we're told to just continuously ignore and just like we'll deal we'll come back to that right like we'll deal with it later um go after the actual like the problematic people like I'm I'm trying um but I think this is that really sparked me wanting to write this piece because this is a lot of we're not going to get anywhere if my liberation is going to come from um like continuous people of also creating harm like that's not, I'm not going to get free you know um if people are still even within like the leftist space using images um that create and promote harm so for me especially I think this um image was problematic for a number of reasons mainly because um what does this american flag symbolize or really any <laughs> most nations flag but particularly the united states for which the reason that we're all protesting at the airport was because america has bombed or destroyed have inflicted heavy sanctions on these seven countries that they're now banning right so america's legacy um symbolic in a flag i think now wrapping that around my hijab so wrapping that as something that for me is incredibly spiritual antithetical to everything that this capitalistic imperialistic sort of nation stands for and is doing harm to was a deep insult not only to my religion um but also like how stupid do you think I am like I'm not I'm not going to wear the flag of a country that flies every time my people are being bombed in the Middle East um but also Muslims in America and I'm sure across the West are constantly having being asked to and being forced to prove that they're American so they can be in solidarity with you or so that you deserve respect but I don't have to look American I don't have to present myself as American um as a citizen or anything to de- to get respect I think that's a basic level that every human should receive and I don't have to bend over backwards to prove that I'm American or even that I'm not American and it's okay and it's okay if I say that this country has ruined my country but I still demand my rights here um so I think there is a lot of layers to this outfit <laughs> if you will that um were very harmful. Uh, I think you also did a, a little work of um of archaeology if I may call it like that of of how the the painting itself was was made can you can you give us more details? Yeah, so um I think it's also important to note that correct you mentioned Shepard Fairley a white non-Muslim man created this image. Um of course he did create it off of a photo taken um of by a muslim man of um a woman who actually does not wear the hijab herself um and so she literally just donned the american flag as a hijab for the purpose of this photo so no hijab wearing woman clearly was consulted throughout the making of any of these images um and even the photographer Ridwan himself actually reached out to me and be like i i agree with a lot of your your sentiment in this um the way that Shepard Fairley cre- um sort of recreated my image through his painting or his graphic was not really conducive to what I was trying to convey either um and so a lot of this sort of um white male western gaze on what a woman should look like in order to receive solidarity was a sort of like whitewashed and sanitized image you know the woman who originally was wearing the hijab um even if just for a day was um not white but yet this woman looks light skinned you know it's it's very sort of um orientalizing and sanitizing i feel like 
Muslim women um, in order to create this image that now people are holding above their head and saying that we support you when in fact would you support an image created by Muslim women you know of like um, bombs being dropped by the United States around her you know what does an actual Muslim woman look like in the Middle East who you're trying to be in solidarity with um, so yeah I think it also had a lot of just issues in and of itself as a, an image um St- staying maybe with um with the orientalization of uh of muslim women and uh but not not just with um with the imperialist gaze but also with a capitalist one you you've wrote extensively about um something we had touched upon in the in the first issue of uh, closing politics but which is which is now the sort of um Uh, what you define yourself as a trend of of using uh, using uh, hijab hijab wearing women as being um, as synonymous uh, uh, to the Muslim identity, um, and uh, and in order to sort of push forward um, the sort of inclusive uh, inclusive spirit of a given brand or another, but uh, I think I think it. It, it becomes fairly ob- fairly obvious quite quickly how essentializing uh, this exercise is in particular when we look at the brands that we are talking about um, and uh, and you have you have this uh, very powerful quote in one of your article um, uh, the, the article's name being if you use our faces maybe stop killing our people uh, and I'm going to quote you here because I think uh, I, I really I really like how concise and powerful uh, this quote is, uh, you say, the overemphasis on the hijab as synonymous to the Muslim identity essentializes and flattens what it means to be what it means to be Muslim and allows the Muslim identity to be easily appropriated and exploited for social, political and economic benefit. Um, end of quote. Uh, could you could you maybe Uh, develop a little a little bit more uh, what you write in this article and in uh, in the others which really tries to deconstruct this sort of what what may look at a very very first fast glance as uh, as a sort of uh, uh, um, as as a yeah as a mark of inclusivity and of respect and which we can very much quickly see that it it hides many <laughs> many things that are very far from respect. I, I like to call this surface level inclusion um, because it feels very like at first glance, you feel excited that you see someone who looks like you finally on the news, not being called like a terrorist. So you're like, hooray. <laughs> um, and finally, maybe a few Western brands are going to um, include clothing that you don't have to layer or, Um, wear longer and alter in certain ways to fit um, your needs. So in some senses, you know, at first glance, that is very like, it, it's a good thing. A lot of people are excited. Um, Nike came out with a hijab for sportswear. And uh, frustratingly enough, they actually won an award for it, um, uh, which was infuriating because what at the end of the day, what this does is It, first and foremost, it erases the fact that Muslim women, Muslim people have been creating sports hijabs for ourselves for as long as Muslim women have been running. Um, and so this is not an invention. This is not new. Um, a lot of Muslim-owned brands that have been existence 
for such a long time and have been creating this clothing are now quickly being overshadowed um, by highly capitalistic um, corporations um, that are kind of almost putting out of business a lot of Muslim-owned companies that are more on a slow fashion model. Their prices are a little more higher just because um, they're not made through exploitative labor. So economically, this is this has been destructive, um, and I'm sure will only continue to be so. Um, and then particularly, I think, with this idea that you can just wrap a scarf around any non-Muslim, white, skinny model's head and, and call her now representative of a population that you're just trying to tap into their pockets of, it's very incredibly, um, also, I think, disturbing in a way. So uh, Dolce & Gabbana came out with this incredibly expensive hijab collection. Um, yet for many Muslims, again, it's we're not a monolith. We obviously see a hijab in different ways. But for many Muslims, the hijab is rather antithetical to capitalism. It's supposed to show humility rather than um, I'm wearing a $700 scarf on my head. <laughs> um, so it, for a lot of Muslims, it almost erases what it, like the significance of the hijab in and of itself. Um, but also the fact that so many of these corporations who are coming out with new hijab collections or clothing for Muslim women are saying that they're doing it to support Muslim women in a time where it's like politically sexy so everyone wants to be helping the refugees everyone wants to um put a hijab on things and call themselves radical and part of the resistance but if you actually dig a little bit deeper you see that most of these corporations are still using exploitative sweatshops run by muslim women so exploiting muslim women labor um, behind the scenes but still tapping on like a happy Muslim face um, to be able to sell to a Muslim market and say that they're helping Muslims. When in fact, uh, you're doing quite the contrary. So a lot of this for me is um, kind of showing to Muslims and uh, people at large that you can't just use a hijab to symbolize Islam and then say that you're like a-okay and like I'll give you a thumbs up and a gold star. But really that if you want to support Muslims, you, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You can't just, um, it's, it's a huge complex system that profits from anti-Muslim racism internationally. Um, and, and furthermore, to the point of the quote that you read, um, I think it's also problematic in another way in that we start to, as a society at large, associate hijab with Islam and anything that wears a hijab is therefore Muslim things that do not wear a hijab are therefore non-Muslim so and you can just recreate a Muslim by just wearing a scarf on your head and is being done time after time by a lot of non-Muslim white very thin models so this hijab therefore becomes becomes Islam so you can wear it you can wear it for a day hijab for a day you can experience what it feels like by just a single piece of cloth so not only does this incredibly minimize and flatten what it means like to be Muslim, the complicated um, sort of life experiences that we have that's beyond wearing a piece of cloth on our head, um, but also the fact that it's harmful to Muslim women who choose not to wear the hijab because now, in a way, it, it's almost compelling them to be like, you can't be seen as Muslim unless you fit now what this Western corporation has deemed through their advertisements and through their targeted marketing to be Muslim. Um, and so we don't want you unless you wear a hijab, you know. And so it, it, it creates friction even within the Muslim community because now Western corporations and even allyship um, has created this line of what they have created to be a Muslim woman. 
And if you fit that box, then uh, it's a very, very thin box, a small box, then we can maybe support you. Um, but if not, then you're not Muslim. You're don't look beyond, you know, our, our clothing racks at our factories. So it's just it's just flattening so many levels at in so many, I guess, political, economic and like social levels as well. Hmm. Uh, perhaps that's a that's a great proof that the, the opposite of the the French colonial fetish for the for I mean for the hijab now, but the, what used to be the Islamic veil at, at large uh, during the colonialism in uh, in North in North and West Africa, as uh, Rim Sefer Jelly is writing uh, in this same in this same issue, the 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 opposite of uh, of the French fetish that wants to take out this veil from uh, to unveil uh, women as a form of of universalist liberation as it as it as it like to think itself is not the exact opposite that would sort of give uh, 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 that would that would create another fetish but this time in a sort of uh, much more uh, affirmative um, way towards the hijab right there's no uh, a fetish is always a fetish right <laughs> yeah I, yeah oh, don't get me started with the French <laughs> <laughs> but so I would be hesitant to even say it's an affirmative culture when it comes to the hijab because it, it still is very much not because it's again it's stripping a lot of the meaning of what it is um what the hijab means so it's almost recreating the hijab to fit um sort of economic or political or social needs of whatever like white western corporation sort of wants to use it as so the hijab is essentially turning into a meaningless object and a symbol by western corporations um when they're not being um considerate of the implications of what that means and the complexities of what it means to quote unquote support Muslims um, beyond just a clothing rack. I think I think you just gave me an idea of renaming the magazine into "Don't Don't Get Me Started with the French." <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, uh, some some things that I wanted to talk to you about as well, talk with you about, uh, or mostly listen to you about, is uh, is um, also your the works that you've been doing in Iran. I mean, you 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 did a book called uh, Tehran Street Style. And uh, an article saying break, uh, entitled "Breaking the Law and Dress Codes in Iran," uh, which also shows well how everything we're talking about right now is also extremely contextualized. In um, I mean, when it comes to the U.S. or, or some other imperial nations, I suppose that we we find the sort of we find it somehow globally, but it doesn't change the fact that there is still some uh, more local context to be. Um, navigating into in a political manner, uh, can you can you tell us about this work in in Iran that you've been uh, that you've been doing? Yeah, definitely, and I think it's a very sort of um, orientalist even idea about Islam and particularly the hijab to a view it as a monolith, but even be able to decontextualize it and just say that this is what hijab means, like a hundred percent of the time for every woman around the world. So. Um, like all clothing, um, I think hijab also can be contextualized um, based on uh, where society is, sort of rules and regulations of the land, what's happening politically and economically and socially. So in Iran, there is a mandatory hijab, as many people like to point out time after time again. Um, what people don't know about that this mandatory law really came from... <laughs> 
a point of wanting to create an egalitarian form of dress um, after the revolution. So everyone talks about the dress codes now, but no one talks about what the dress codes were before 1979, the revolution. So under the Shah, um, who was really sort of like an imperialist puppet of the West, uh, there was actually a period of mandatory unveiling. So women who were in the streets who were wearing hijab, there are stories of police coming and ripping off their hijabs. Um, many people wouldn't be allowed into restaurants, wouldn't be offered government jobs if they wore hijabs. So it was an incredibly hostile um, and anti-Muslim society um, in, in terms of how women dress again, because the women's bodies both in the West and the East, sort of globally, unfortunately, due to this little thing we call the patriarchy, is always being used as a marker of society's morality. Whether it's France saying that morality means dressing this way, you know, without hijab, you're oppressed, I promise you, <laughs> trust me. Um, or in Iran, when it's almost sort of the opposite, I think that is sort of a universal um, thread, unfortunately, that it's women's bodies and how women's bodies are seen and used by the state as markers of a society's morality or progress. So um, in Iran, after this revolution happened um, and the hijab has been at this point now fully devalued, um, it's become a marker of social class because most women who wore the hijab, since they weren't allowed many jobs or opportunities, a lot of them are now stuck in uh, lower in the economic scale. And so the hijab really became a, a very clear marker of social class, of um, social position. And this revolution, which was also very heavily Marxist, had this idea of wanting to create this egalitarian, uniform way that everyone could kind of present their body in public space. And in doing so, wanting to also... Um, do it for both men and women. So men also have a set of dress codes that they're required to have. Um, and so right now in Iran, it's sort of uh, the dominant body for public space is a demasculine male body as sort of the template. Um, and so anything or anybody who, both men and women, who have anything that kind of stands out from that norm just are asked to cover it. So men are supposed to maintain clean haircuts, they're not allowed to wear shorts, you know, they aren't allowed to um, wear, I mean, in general, like very loud or um, sorts of clothing that really is particularly, um, some people would call it noxious, aren't really allowed. Uh, and so that's kind of where the, the root of this hijab law came from. Now it's sort of more like conformity, you know, and um, can be seen as a patriarchal sort of um, idea of men telling women how to dress at the end of the day, just as it is in France. And so now it's, it's really, though, I think what is complicated is that while this is sort of the political arena, socially, it's not at all well enforced. So in Tehran, where fashion is kind of at its height of exposure, exploration um, and difference and variance. I tried many times myself over the course of my research to get stopped by the morality police or the Gashta Irshad who are walking around on the streets. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I failed every single time wearing kind of really outrageous clothing. Um, and a lot of people who told me um, that they had been wearing something that would be king the law, weren't arrested. Of course, there are um, 
many people are arrested and it ranges from just having like your photo taken and signing a waiver saying you'll promise you'll never do it again. Um, and in some cases it has gotten worse, but that's really um, quite rare according to the stories that I've heard. Um, and so, and in this time uh, of kind of increasingly minimal enforcement and the sanctions that were imposed in Iran about six or seven years ago, um, the underground fashion movement really started to flourish because no clothing was coming in really. There were sanctions um, and no one really produces the manto or the outermost garment that most or that women in Iran um, are required to wear. So this all became really um, uh, domestic production. And so from this is this huge flourishing underground um, fashion movement happening in Iran that's really quite amazing. Is it is it mostly uh, anonymous or do you have even names of, of designers you could share with us? Yeah, um, there are quite a few designers who I love and I've worked with um, for their safety. Anytime I do an interview, I usually ask ahead of hand whose names I can mention. So, but if you want to, I can check with them and see. But um, yeah, I've photographed a lot of people in my book as well. Most of the people in my book are actually breaking the law. And that the purpose of that is kind of sh to show the, the normalization of like law breaking in Iran, essentially. Um, but also in, in terms of fashion, at least, but also kind of a challenge against Um, the state in kind of showing the multiplicity and variance of beauty um, through modesty and showing that modesty does not mean one single thing, but um, you can still break the dress code and kind of dress in a way that could be Islamically accepted by many. Um, so one last question I wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry because there's very little transition beside perhaps... Uh the association we can make of modest and minimal but uh one of your one of your manifestos so to speak is to adopt a minimal wardrobe uh as a as a form of conclusion could you could you tell us about it yeah so uh the, as an anti-capitalist fashion blog i've always kind of sat on that and be like what the hell does that mean <laughs> As a fashion blog, you're just kind of like working with brands and you get money by people buying from the brands that you work with. But right off the bat, and I was like, I don't want that to be my business model. I don't want to profit when I'm making people buy things. Um, for me, I think that a lot of the fashion industry is in a kind of a state of where it is because of this intense capitalization and commodification of the art of fashion. So... Uh, actually, I think this flows a lot better than you might have expected because the underground fashion scene in Iran is a slow fashion sort of site of production that I see the future of fashion hopefully being in where I think um, as a minimalist fashion uh, advocate, um, I see a lot of uh, parallels between what's happening in the underground fashion scene and this sort of lifestyle change that I'm um, encouraging people to look into. And it's about understanding that um, fashion is an art form and um, fashion is also it involves through its production it involves countless people from um, the people picking the cotton for the cotton shirt to the women sewing the sleeves into a, in a factory the people driving it there is no way in hell that a shirt can cost 
$10, you know, without exploitation happening. And so really kind of getting people to think that if your clothing is this cheap, then who was it made at the expense of? Um, and especially with something that's touching your skin so intimately and so so very much tied up to how you're presenting your body, you know, all of those things that you touched on um, in the very first uh, sort of a list that you read off from my piece about the political value of fashion, it, it really shows that you have to make a lifestyle choice um, unless you're saying that you are giving your rubber stamp of approval of endless exploitation um, within the fashion industry. So for me, a minimalist wardrobe is not in the sense of like this white and gray monochrome sort of trend that's happening now that I I'm not really a fan of, but really in terms of quantity. So knowing that if you um, buy select pieces that are um, probably going to be quite more expensive than you're used to, but buying less of them. So overall, you might be spending the same amount of money, but you'll have less clothes that are made to last and not made to fall apart. So treating your wardrobe almost as if you're treating, um, you're like curating an art gallery. So you're picking each piece with intention. Um, you know the person who made that piece. Uh, you value the individual. You, you, you know, you uplift the process. You look at the brush strokes of a painting. You look at the garment um, and its composite. And so kind of curating your, your uh, wardrobe with a select few pieces that resonate with you and say something about you um, that you've invested in, you know, are going to last a long time. That is what I see as our way out of this mass commodification um, and capitalization of the fashion industry that also plays into the sort of devaluing and this patriarchal view of like being shallow and vain and just destructive as an industry. So this for me is also a feminist um, lens of looking at fashion is revaluing this art form um, and thinking about it critically as we should all art. Uh, and I'll uh, I'll redirect uh, the listeners to your boycott list of brands that, um, uh, according to your investigation, have uh, have exploitative approach to their to their production, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, Hoda, thank you so much for taking the time today to um, to talk with me and so to to be able to. Uh, make up for another uh, another episode of the Phenomenalist podcast, as well as um, as uh, uh, giving giving uh, us some uh, great insight for uh, this new this new issue about closing politics. Uh, and uh, and I obviously invite everyone to go to uh, Juju Azad uh, to um, to read uh, to read uh, the all all the article you've been writing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun.